This is Guns and Butter. A lot of this is trying to be pinned on, on Epstein as an individual. Um, that you know, this was something that just began and, and ended with him. And um, I think the evidence shows that it was not that way. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, the incredible Whitney Webb. Today's show: How the Alliance of Intelligence and Organized Crime gave rise to Jeffrey Epstein. Whitney Webb is a Mint Press news journalist based in Chile. She has contributed to several independent media outlets, including Global Research, EcoWatch, the Ron Paul Institute, and 21st Century Wire, among others. She has made several radio and television appearances and is the 2019 winner of the Serena Shim Award for Uncompromised Integrity in Journalism. Today we discuss part one and part three of her new four-part exclusive investigative series, Inside the Jeffrey Epstein Scandal, Too Big to Fail. Part one is Hidden in Plain Sight, the shocking origins of the Jeffrey Epstein case. Part three is Megagroup, Maxwell's and Mossad, the spy story at the heart of the Jeffrey Epstein Scandal. Whitney Webb, welcome. Hi, it's great to be with you. Your blockbuster investigative series, The Jeffrey Epstein Scandal, Too Big to Fail, is in four parts. Part one is titled Hidden in Plain Sight, The Origins of the Jeffrey Epstein Case. You write that Epstein is only the latest incarnation of a much older, more extensive and sophisticated operation that offers a frightening window into how deeply tied the U.S. government is to the modern-day equivalents of organized crime. Epstein was arrested on federal charges for sex trafficking minors and was running a blackmail operation. One of the many important points that you make in Part 1 is that it was organized crime, not the intelligence agencies, that pioneered sexual blackmail. Could you describe what you have found in your investigative work about the origins of sexual blackmail starting in the 1920s? Who were some of the main players? Okay, right. So this this is something that I traced back um, actually to the National Crime Syndicate, which was founded in the early 20s um, by Mayor Lansky and Charles or, or Lucky Luciano. And um, the Italian mafia, or, or the Genovese crime family, rather, that, that uh, Luciano was, was in charge of, um, were known to engage in, in prostitution, brothels, what have you. And, um, you know, there is evidence that at least by the 30s, um, both of them were, were using women to try and entrap diplomats specifically um, for the purpose of sexual blackmail. And this has come up, too. Um, for example, Virginia Hill, who's sometimes described as the mistress of the mob or the mistress of the mafia, was actually sent to Mexico by Mayor Lansky to try and entrap diplomats um, at a hotel there. Um, in trying to do this, obviously, um, you know, if you if you blackmail certain politicians, they they then turn a blind eye to organized crime. They don't prosecute criminal activity, um, things of that nature. So this is really the group um, that pioneered this, uh, beginning in, in really in, in the prohibition era, um, and then and then moving forward um, through the 30s and into the 40s. And of course, it was in the 40s. Um, 
when uh, the forerunner to the CIA, the Office of Strategic Services, forged this alliance, as it were, um, with the same organized crime syndicate, allegedly out of wartime necessity in what later became known as Operation Underworld, um, where the OSS was working with, with Mayor Lansky and, and Luciano specifically for, for different reasons that, that were all related to um, the war. But also there was an element of blackmail there whereby William Donovan, the director of the OSS, was sort of in a, in a turf war, I guess you could call it, um, with J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI. And Hoover and Donovan were trying to amass uh, blackmail on the other one because Hoover did not want the OSS to continue on as a permanent organization. He wanted it to die with the war, uh, basically prevent the creation of the CIA because Hoover thought it would threaten his power. Um, and so what Donovan did is that he actually collaborated with Lansky, and they um, Lansky had obtained photos of um, Hoover in a in a homosexual relationship, um, allegedly with Clyde Tolson, and these photos were um, seen by by several other people as well, um, including Mayor Lansky's wife and and other people that, that later talked about having seen these photos and they were shared with Donovan. So organized crime and, and the OSS were already sharing blackmail in the early days of their um, their collaboration. But of course, you know, today the intelligence agencies would refer to that uh, arguably as intelligence sharing, right? Um, but this same type of... Um, this leverage that Donovan obtained would, would later become, you know, influential for the CIA, but also the FBI, because it became very clear then, you know, the the, the power of blackmail, right, in order to um, gain advantages for one's uh, personal ambitions or the ambitions of their agency. So, of course, what happens after the OSS, the CIA... Um, even though this collaboration with organized crime was supposed to be only out of wartime necessity, it continued well after the war um, and continued to expand, really expanding greatly, for example, in the early 1960s, um, where we see the CIA um, hiring Lansky associates um, for their assassination teams and, and the collaboration really growing there specifically in relation to efforts to oust uh, Fidel Castro in Cuba. Um, but even prior to that, um, some of these um, sexual blackmail operations, the one that I, I link Epstein to, began actually during the anti-communist crusade of the 1950s. And, and that involved um, Louis Rosensteel, who was a, a Mayor Lansky-linked um, mob businessman, a, a liquor baron, really, of Shinley Liquors. And he was running a sexual blackmail operation with the mob out of his home and had a long time uh, association with J. Edgar Hoover. And this is potentially where these um, photos obtained by Lansky may have originally come from. Um, but eventually Rosensteel in, in the early 1950s, he was prior to the, uh, to the 1950s running this out of his home. Um, he eventually begins uh, to, to do these sort of activities with Roy Cohn, who was then general counsel to McCarthy, and Hoover was also seen at some of these um, events, and basically they were using um, underage boys mainly to, to try and, and, and entrap powerful people. And, and this, by all appearances, was taken over um, by Cohn and continued to be run for the decades after, um, and that Cohn specifically had this operation based in Manhattan's Plaza Hotel um, in what became a rather notorious suite, uh, number 233, sometimes called the Blue Suite, um, where he would continue uh, sort of the, this trafficking and sexual exploitation of, of underage boys for the purposes of blackmail. Um, it's not exactly known when it stopped, but, it, I mean, Cohn even admitted this to a former NYPD detective um, because of how politically connected he was and, and a lot of the people involved in this were um, basically knowing that they were unaccountable and, and unable to be, you know, prosecuted because of how, how connected this had become to the, to, to the levers of power as it were. So, um, 
there, there's um, a lot of, um, you know, organized crime links and CIA links. And basically, um, from the genesis of this operation, it, it, it's been, you know, state protected in, in some sense. Because Cohen, when he admitted this to the NYPD detective, um, Jim Rothstein, he said that this had to do um, specifically with the anti-communist crusade. This was... Um, Originally, a sexual blackmail operation created with the purpose uh, of advancing a political objective of sort of, um, you know, the Red Scare, the Lavender Scare and all these things, getting powerful people to go along with this, you know, power grab that was really going on um, under the the guise of the Red Scare and whatnot. And um, th that sort of activity uh, continued well past then and, and into the present, uh, really getting out of control with Iran-Contra, which um, is, you know, another part of my series. But um, that's the basic gist of part one is, is that this began with organized crime and then the CIA, um, you know, sort of folded this type of activity into its... Um, uh, I guess it's repertoire of tools to to obtain power and advance the the agenda uh, of that particular agency and to obtain increased political control. Now, Whitney, what about Rosenstiels and Samuel Brothman, who both partnered with Meyer Lansky, and then also these blackmail parties? What are blackmail parties? And according to your report, Persons who ran these blackmail uh, pedophile rings were themselves pedophiles and participated in these parties, like uh, Louis uh, Rosenstiel, you write about, uh, Roy Cohn, Hoover, Epstein, etc. Samuel Brumpman had a rather... Um contentious relationship with Louis Rosenstiel, but they were both very deeply involved with, with the same organized crime uh, partners as during Prohibition because the, the Bronfmans were based in Canada um, and they were providing a lot of liquor to the United States uh, during Prohibition that was ferried from Canada to the U.S. by the mob. And um, Bronfman is interesting in this context, not necessarily for his personal involvement in these in these sexual blackmail operations, which I didn't find direct ev evidence of beyond the fact that he had association with a lot of these same crime uh, organizations, but actually his um, his descendant um, recently were involved in a sexual blackmail operation, the um, the Nexium uh, quote unquote sex cult, where um, Edgar Bronfman's daughters uh, Sarah and Claire uh, were really bankrolling um, that operation and um, how they have ties to organized crime and a lot of people that were tied to Roy Cohn and later tied to Jeffrey Epstein are, are figures that also have ties to the very same organized crime syndicate originally pioneered by, by Mayor Lansky. Um, from, from my understanding, it would sort of act uh, uh, the following way where people, you know, there would be these public figures there, whether it was Hoover or Rosenstiel himself or people like Roy Cohn, and they would openly, um, you know, engage in, in homosexual activity that at the time was very um, taboo, right? Because um, a lot of these men were, were closeted. And um, they would invite someone, and if the person they invited and wanted to blackmail was also closeted, they would see all this being done out, out in the open and think, oh, well, these people, you know, are are like me, and then that would, you know, have them open up and engage in these types of activities they normally would not do, right? And then they'd be recorded and entrapped, you know, sort of as a way to um, um, sort of goad them into in these type of activities because the people running the operation were also partaking in those activities, if, if that makes sense. So that, that appears to be the modus operandi of how these, these events themselves took place, and they, they took place in, in venues that were, that were bugged with recording equipment. With regard to the Brofman family, as you pointed out, the Brofman sisters bankrolled 
the Nexium's sex slave scandal and pled guilty. So this brings the sexual blackmail practices of organized crime right up to the present with the descendants yes. of some of the same players. Have you found generally that the same people keep turning up, whether it's due to sexual blackmail, money laundering, child trafficking, arms sales, drug running, etc.? Yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap between those types of activities. The CIA really functions as sort of, you know, the the organized crime branch of the United States because it's able to do so um, w- with impunity. It operates with secrecy. This essentially is a, is a business. It's, it's an extension of a business that the organized crime syndicates were running that was very profitable and, and, and led them to accumulate power um, that was basically has become state protected since they, you know, teamed up with the, the CIA. Um, because let's remember too that like the first CIA director, you know, Alan Dulles, he was, um, you know, a Wall Street lawyer. <laughs> and early on in the days of the CIA too, when they started doing regime change operations, things like that, um, in Guatemala, for example, or in Iran later, you know, those were done on the behalf of, of major corporations to further business as it were. So, um, I think what we're just seeing is a lot of overlap in that sense of these sort of um, illicit businesses being conducted by by the same people with a lot of the same connections to the to this criminal enterprise that's really at the core of all of this. Which, of course, um, as as I mentioned, a lot of this began with the mob. But so um, it, it's interesting. So, for example, too, um, currently. What, is, what has gone on with Jeffrey Epstein has been in the news as well, not just um, Nexium. And it's worth pointing out that that itself was bankrolled by, uh, by all appearances by Leslie Wexner, who co-founded um, this, this group uh, known as the Mega Group with the Bronfman family, with Charles Bronfman specifically, and that Wexner himself has ties to the same organized crime syndicate, uh, specifically the Genovese crime family of uh, Lucky Luciano. And all of that. But of course, they teamed up, um, as I mentioned earlier, in the 20s, the Genovese crime family teamed up with Mayor Lansky's syndicate to create the National Crime Syndicate. So you see a lot of the same people, um, oligarchs, as it were, whose names become involved with this um, type of activity over the years, having ties to the same organization. And you also see some of them having ties to intelligence, whether it's in uh, the U.S. or in Israel or both in some cases. I'm speaking with investigative journalist Whitney Webb. Today's show, How the Alliance of Intelligence and Organized Crime Gave Rise to Jeffrey Epstein. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Tell us what you have uncovered about Leslie Wexner, who bankrolled Jeffrey Epstein and gave Epstein his New York City mansion that was according to your investigative report, a spy house even before Epstein took possession of it. Does Wexner have connections to organized crime and intelligence? Um, yes, that, that is what my research has, has shown. And this is actually, much of this has been built off the work of the local um, Ohio journalist, Bob Fatrakis, who actually in the, in the late 90s, uh, quite by accident, received a copy of a suppressed police report from the Columbus police that had been basically censored by the police chief. The, the report was thought to have been destroyed, and of course it, it falls um, by accident into the hands of this journalist. And what it reveals is that there was this unsolved homicide in 1985 of a Columbus lawyer named Arthur Shapiro, who was actually representing Wexner's business interests at the time, uh, the, the Limited, or L Brands, um, as it's known today. And the day after his, his death, um, he was due to testify at a grand jury about tax evasion and tax shelters 
Um, and of course, because he was, he was killed, he was actually shot in the face um, in broad daylight. Um, he, of course, did not make that, that grand jury testimony. And so when the investigation to this began, what this report reveals is that um, not only did um, people investigating his death believe that Wexner was, was involved in what they called this mob-style murder, but that he had deep ties to um, several organized crime affiliates, specifically the people that were known associates of the Genovese crime family in New York, even though this is in Ohio, right? And that, um, for example, the trucking company that Wexner used for um, the, the logistics of the limited, they listed as being a well-known affiliate uh, of organized crime. Uh, Fred Walsh, I believe, is the name of the man that owned that trucking company. And then um, not long after Arthur Shapiro is killed, Jeffrey Epstein enters uh, Leslie Wexner's life and begins to clean up, quote-unquote, his tangled finances um, which to me um, is quite an interesting coincidence because we know that Epstein was very involved also in, in the setting up of um, offshore tax shelters and he was involved in money laundering and a lot of shady financial activity himself. Um, so I think the overlap there is quite significant. And within a few years, Epstein basically gets near complete control of all of Wexner's finances. He even has the, the ability to hire and fire people um, and basically has power of attorney. For, for most things, and he eventually becomes on the board of Wexner's foundation. So in 1995, um, Wexner and Epstein together, um, because Epstein was handling logistics for um, Wexner's businesses, they decide to seek out a, a working relationship with Southern Air Transport. And they basically um, become the driving force behind Southern Air Transport's um, relocation from Miami, Florida, to Columbus, Ohio. And they want this airline specifically to be the airline that runs cargo um, for the limited uh, from Hong Kong to Columbus. And this is significant because Southern Air Transport, previously known as Air America, is a well-known CIA front company, was actually involved in the Iran-Contra scandal. Barry Seal used Southern Air Transport, for example, um, uh, moving drugs and, and weapons and, and all that from, from you know, Central America to Mena, Arkansas. And... Um, it's quite telling that they would choose this of all <laughs> um, of all airlines available to to move cargo, and actually this raised the eyebrows of several top officials in Ohio at the time, including uh, the then Inspector General David Sturtz, who called this run the Mayor Lansky run because he felt that um, Wexner was using this for smuggling and that he was working with the CIA um, to do so. And he thought Epstein was also working with the CIA in conjunction with, with Wexner and, and, and all of these activities. Um, and, and as you mentioned, just a few years prior to um, this, this push to get Southern Air Transport to relocate, um, Epstein begins to live in this, this New York penthouse that was bought for Wexner in 1989 for $13.2 million. And after its purchase, um, Wexner spends millions of dollars furnishing it. Um, but not only does he furnish it with, you know, um, paintings and, and nice furniture and things like that, um, he also puts in place this rather odd bathroom that was described in a New York Times article as a James Bond bathroom that was hidden under the stairs and the walls were lined with lead, presumably to prevent uh, the entrance or leaving of um, electronic uh, signals or, or what have you. And within this bathroom, you would open a cabinet and there would be, you know, CCTV. You could see what was going on in all the rooms of the house, ostensibly record them. And there was all this, um, you know, technological equipment meant for doing that. And we know that years later, Epstein uh, would force uh, the girls that he had enslaved, basically, um, to engage in sexual activities with powerful people and that he would record uh, what was going on. 
So the fact that this was in the house before Epstein even lived in it is significant. And also that same New York Times article says that Wexner never lived in the house. If he did live in the house, he lived there for two months at most. And um, then he gives it to Epstein and he gives it to him um, for free, basically. He transfers it to a trust in Epstein's name for, I believe, less than a dollar. And this is, you know, one of the most uh, expensive private residences in all of New York. I believe it's one of the largest private residences as well. Um, so this was rather odd behavior for someone to do, especially given uh, what we know now about Epstein's um, activities specifically in that in that house during that time. And what's also odd is that now that all this scandal has come out about Jeffrey Epstein, Leslie Wexner has attempted to distance himself and say that he um, had actually been defrauded by Epstein in 2007. But actually records show that before Epstein went to jail in 2007, he actually donated $46 million to the Wexner Foundation um, out of his personal funds, even though Wexner now is claiming that uh, Epstein had stolen money and no one um, in, in corporate media anyway has pushed back against that claim, which I think is odd. And then Wexner, of course, also claims he had no idea of these type of activities that were going on. But actually, we know um, one of Jeffrey Epstein's most um, credible accusers, a, a woman named Maria Farmer, um, had been contracted by Epstein to do artwork in one of Wexner's mansions in Ohio. And um, Epstein had attempted to sexually assault her. She called the police, uh, fearing for her well-being and according to her, her life. And she is... Um, prevented from leaving the premises by Wexner's personal security guards. And that was in 1996. So it's rather odd that Wexner would say he didn't know what was going on. And also it's worth pointing out too, that there are several victims that had filed suit against Epstein that also accused Wexner of raping them. So um, the fact that um, corporate media specifically has, um, you know, taken Wexner at his word, uh, given all of these associations I've just mentioned um, are quite troubling. And I think point to the fact that um, a lot of this is trying to be pinned on, on Epstein as an individual, um, that, you know, this was something that just began and, and ended with him. And um, I think the evidence shows that it was not that way. And that at, at the very least, people like Leslie Wexner or, you know, Ghislaine Maxwell were certainly co-conspirators to a significant degree, um, and at least should be questioned by federal authorities, but by all indications that has not happened in either case. Alex Acosta, who was President Trump's Secretary of Labor uh, before resigning because of the Jeffrey Epstein scandal, was in 2008 the U.S. Attorney for Southern Florida, and in that capacity made the original plea deal with Epstein that let Epstein off lightly. Acosta says he was warned off of Epstein that Epstein was with intelligence, what have you discovered about Epstein's connections to intelligence agencies? Well, I think there's been uh, a concerted effort to try and hide those ties, but they are definitely still present if you look into um, Epstein's past. So a few things I mentioned already, for example, his involvement with Wexner, specifically using Wexner's companies to attract Southern Air Transport, a CIA-linked airline, to Columbus. But of course, um, let's go farther back into the history uh, to put that in even more context in, in, in regards not to Wexner this time, but, but to Epstein. So um, Epstein's career really begins when he is hired to work at the elite Dalton School. He was a college dropout, should not 
<laughs> have been hired to work at such an elite um, educational institution without the proper credentials. But based on what we know now, anyway, it appears that he was hired by Donald Barr, who was the father of the current Attorney General, William Barr. And Donald Barr had previously worked at the Office Strategic Services, the forerunner to the CIA. At the time he hired Epstein, his son, William Barr, again, the current Attorney General, was working at the CIA's Office of Legislative Counsel. So Epstein is hired despite not having the proper credentials. He's working at this school a year prior, by the way, um, to hiring Epstein. Donald Barr, uh, strangely enough, um, wrote a fantasy novel about human trafficking and sex slavery. Um, not long after he's hired, Epstein is again uh, fired from the Dalton School, allegedly for uh, not teaching well. Some other people that were interviewed more recently that knew him when he was at the Dalton School said that he um, showed too much of an interest in younger female students. Um, you can take that for what it's worth uh, with a grain of salt, perhaps, but given what we know about Epstein now, it really wouldn't be that surprising. Um, anyway, the sort of um, weird luck that Epstein has in advancing in his career, despite not having credentials, um, continues after the Dalton School because he's hired to work at the elite um, investment bank, Bear Stearns, even though he has no trading experience and no college degree. And he's, you know, at the Dalton School, he's just a math teacher. So he gets hired at Bear Stearns. He's hired by the head of the bank, actually, um, Alan or Ace Greenberg. And the alleged reason is because uh, Epstein was tutoring his children and he liked Epstein so much that he just had to hire them. So Epstein advances rather quickly in the firm and eventually becomes a partner. And he ends up leaving under rather odd circumstances. There's a lot of um, he said, she said sort of thing about what was really going on. Epstein claims that it was because he had an illicit affair with a secretary, um, things like that. But um, from the SEC, there was an investigation into insider trading at Bear Stearns that was believed to and involved Epstein. And the reason they were investigating insider trading was because of knowledge of a Tinder offer um, regarding plans of the, the company Seagram's to buy a minerals company. And Seagram's, of course, is run uh, by the Bronfman family, who we talked about earlier. And allegedly what had happened is that Edgar Bronfman had tipped off people, uh, apparently associates or friends or, or whatever, um, that the Tinder offer was coming and people um, knew ahead of time and, and made moves to profit off of that announcement before it was publicly announced, right? So, um, of course, Epstein denies any involvement with that sort of thing, but from the deposition that he gave to the SEC, they appear quite skeptical of Epstein's answers. But it's interesting then, um, what we just mentioned, that, um, you know, the Bronfmans again pop up um, rather early on in, in Epstein's career. And what's um, odd is what um, comes after Epstein leaves Bear Stearns. After he leaves Bear Stearns, um, he described what he was doing um, to friends and associates as having become a quote-unquote financial bounty hunter, meaning that he, he basically has entered the world of what I would call um, shadow finance, and he's basically trying to hunt down money um, that powerful people and powerful governments want to find, and he's also hiding money for those same powerful people when they want other powerful people or governments not to be able to find it. Um, so based on some of the other evidence, we know what he was doing during that time financially. It appears he was money laundering, creating uh, tax havens of questionable legality, 
things like that. And what's particularly interesting is that we know one of his clients during this time was Adnan Khashoggi, who, of course, is the well-known Saudi arms dealer who, at the time, Epstein was working for him because Epstein left Bear Stearns in 1981. And prior to the 1980s, actually, Khashoggi had been recruited by Israeli intelligence, the Mossad. And we know that by 1981, he was doing arms deals also uh, on behalf of the CIA and was beginning... Um, arms deals between uh, Israel and Iran that would um, later become part of the Iran-Contra scandal. And we know also that Khashoggi was uh, nicknamed sort of the banker, quote-unquote, banker of these arms deals. And he was doing a lot of those transactions through Bank of Credit and Commerce International, or BCCI, which of course is a CIA-linked bank. The founder of that bank said he was pressured to create the bank by the CIA. So um, we have Epstein doing financial services for a man that's on the payroll of two intelligence agencies and doing uh, financial business with BCCI. And we also know that Bear Stearns, where Epstein had worked previously, was a broker to BCCI and had a relationship with them. So I think... Um, that's circumstantial evidence, but I think it, it makes a, a strong case that Epstein was at least associated, likely associated with, with BCCI to some extent during this period. I'm speaking with investigative journalist Whitney Webb. Today's show, How the Alliance of Intelligence and Organized Crime Gave Rise to Jeffrey Epstein. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Then he does that for you know several years, and by 1985, he's uh, already started his association with Leslie Wexner um, after Arthur Shapiro's death, which I talked about earlier. And so that would take us, that Wexner relationship uh, develops into uh, uh, very close ties that, that continued up until his, his first arrest in 2007 and involved links with the CIA-linked airline Southern Air Transport. We also know that from 1987 to 1989, he teamed up with Steve Hoffenberg to create what became one of the country's largest Ponzi schemes, Tower Financial, which when that collapsed, um, Steve Hoffenberg and a significant amount of evidence um, internally from that company showed that Epstein was really the architect of that Ponzi scheme and was likely, by all indications, was going to be prosecuted in that case, which landed Hoffenberg. Uh, 18 years in prison. Um, but what happened is that in 1993, when that case was, was going forward, Epstein's name just disappeared from the case file, um, suggesting um, that he may have had um, help in higher places at that time, which again repeated itself in 2007. Alex Acosta was told to back off because Epstein was allegedly intelligence. Um, it seems like something similar may have happened in 1993. Um, Another interesting thing is that there was a 2001 article published in um, the, the London paper, The Evening Standard, by a journalist named Nigel Rosser. And there, Rosser says that Epstein, uh, during the 1990s, used to claim that he had worked for the CIA previously. And interestingly enough, um, after his arrest in 2007, that article disappeared from all UK newspaper archives. Um, and it is very difficult to find these days. But I managed to track it down and talk with some people that Rosser had interviewed for that piece. And they confirmed to me that, yes, that was that was a claim made in the report that Epstein had previously claimed um, to be CIA directly. So I think it's quite odd, um, you know, all of these things taken together, even though we had what is essentially an, an admission from Alex Acosta that he was connected to intelligence 
Um, I, I think, you know, just that evidence alone, uh, even if we didn't have that admission, would certainly point towards that. And then, of course, we get into, you know, the sexual blackmail operation um, that Epstein was running. Because I'd like to point out, too, I think Epstein was serving multiple purposes potentially for multiple intelligence agencies. I think he was doing financial services in terms of money laundering and things like that um, for intelligence agencies, which he had begun to do in the 1980s. But I don't think it was until the early 90s when he met up with Ghislaine Maxwell um, that he began uh, to do this type of sexual blackmail operation activity. And Ghislaine Maxwell, of course, is the daughter of a well-known operative for Israeli intelligence, um, Robert Maxwell. And before Robert Maxwell's... uh, mysterious death in 1991. She was very um, involved with a lot of his activities and present in a lot of his meetings on his yacht, for example, with high power politicians um, in in the United States, um, Israeli officials, things like that. She was frequently present and by all indications was sort of being tutored uh, by her father to sort of do these sorts of same activities. And some people have pointed out that she um, appears to have been involved in a sexual blackmail operation against a prominent UK politician before her father's death that eventually leaked out to the press um, and sort of created this notoriety around Ghislaine Maxwell before her father even died. And I think also the fact that um, Ghislaine Maxwell hasn't been questioned or detained or anything like that, despite the mountain of evidence against her in the Epstein scandal. And I think that too would also point um, you know, to her having some sort of involvement with intelligence like her father did, because you know, if she was a small fry, right, she probably would have been taken down really to at least quell public outrage about the case and how no one is being held accountable now that Epstein is dead. Um, but the fact that they have, have shown no interest in prosecuting her, I think, speaks volumes. Part three of your investigative series is titled Mega Group, Maxwell's and Mossad, The Spy Story at the Heart of the Jeffrey Epstein Scandal. A very important element that provides context to your investigation of the networks of organized crime interwoven with intelligence agencies is something called the Mega Group. What is the Mega Group and how significant is its influence? Well, um, so the mega group was founded in 1991 by Charles Bronfman and Leslie Wexner. And, and it's um, publicly, anyway, a group of um, philanthropists that are loosely organized and they meet um, a couple times a year to discuss philanthropy specifically. But, um, you know, if you look into the, um, <laughs> the history of American oligarchs, oftentimes uh, philanthropy is sort of used as a, as a cover for other activities. So something that becomes really clear when you start to look at um, the mega group members in their, um, their associations is that um, the vast majority of its founding members, um, including the Bronfman family and including Leslie Wexner, they all have ties to the same organized crime syndicate. So, for example, another prominent member of the mega group is Michael Steinhardt. And Michael Steinhardt's father was actually um, the main jewel fence for Mayor Lansky's crime syndicate in New York and uh, actually served prison time for, for gambling and some other activities and was a well-known associate of that particular criminal syndicate. Um, then you have people like Ronald Lauder, who's, whose parents, uh, of course, are well known for founding Estee Lauder and companies, but they also have ties to a lot of the same underworld, and they were actually very close friends with Roy Cohn, who I brought up earlier. And there's a couple other people um, in the mega group as well that we know uh, also had ties to organized crime, including uh, Max Fisher, who had an association with a uh, affiliate of the National Crime Syndicate known as the um, Detroit Purple Gang, and... Um, 
there's a few other ones that I lay out um, in my piece, but notably Max Fisher um, by Leslie Wexner's own account was his mentor. So that's another significant um, tie over here. So basically what I would call the strategy of the mega group goes back to the time of Sam Bronfman because Sam Bronfman um, really wanted prestige. He wanted sort of um, high society recognition, but he was known at the time as just being a mobbed up businessman. And he did not like that. So he attempted to change his, his reputation by rebranding as a philanthropist, specifically a, a philanthropist to Jewish um, causes. But it was actually not necessarily Jewish causes. Um, Bronfman was more um, interested in, in sort of Zionist causes. So he uh, became very involved in the founding of the state of Israel. And also some of his quote unquote philanthropic activities included the, the illegal smuggling of arms to Zionist paramilitaries uh, prior to the founding of the state of Israel in 1948. And of course, some of Bronfman's close associates, uh, who we mentioned earlier, like Mayor Lansky, for example, were also very involved um, in funneling arms uh, to these same groups. So um, that type of philanthropy um, continues to today with the mega group, um, who also um, are known for being very prominent donors, not just to U.S. politics, um, but to in Israeli politics and also to uh, pro-Israel lobby organizations. Um, an example being uh, the Anti-Defamation League, for example, um, heavily funded by members of the mega group. Also Birthright Israel, which is actually um, being sort of targeted, I guess you could say, by young American Jewish activists today for its sort of one-sided portrayal of the Israeli-Palestine conflict. That has um, largely been, been bankrolled for years by Michael Steinhardt, um, Charles Bronfman, and also Mark Rich. This is interesting because Mark Rich is a... Um, a well-known Mossad-linked figure. Um, he was uh, controversially pardoned by Bill Clinton in the last days of his presidency. And um, he also is often, at least by people in the mega group and his friends, people like Michael Steinhardt, for example, describe Mark Rich as a philanthropist, whereas many other people in the United States would describe Mark Rich as a career criminal. So um, that's quite odd. And it's also worth pointing out, too, that Max Fisher, who I brought up earlier, um, was the person that founded the National Jewish Coalition, better known today as the Republican Jewish Coalition, which is um, arguably the most powerful pro-Israel neoconservative lobby group in the United States. And it's very prominent even in Republican politics today, especially um, under the Trump administration. So um, it's also worth pointing out, too, that a lot of uh, mega group donors uh, had close ties to prominent Israeli politicians. Uh, for example, Ron Lauder, a mega group member, um, was one of the main donors to Netanyahu's first prime minister campaign in the late 90s um, and has been credited to a significant degree for ensuring his surprise uh, victory in that election and has long had a lot of influence in poll in Israeli politics. Of course, the Bronfmans are not only oligarchs in North America, they're also oligarchs in Israel. Um, they own controlling stake in one of Israel's largest banks. They own IKEA Israel. Um, they own the largest supermarket chain in Israel, among other things. Things. So, so this is a group that has a lot of influence uh, politically in both countries, and they are ostensibly involved in philanthropy, but um, some of them also have ties to um, Israeli politicians and Israeli intelligence to some degree. So um, that takes us too, to this um, rather interesting spy scandal. It was uh, broken by the Washington Post in May 1997. There was an intercepted call 
between Mossad officials, one being in the U.S., and he was talking to his superior in Tel Aviv, and he was trying to obtain a sensitive document, I believe, from the State Department. And the, the Mossad official in the U.S. Uh, said that he had been asked by the ambassador, uh, the Israeli ambassador to the U.S. at the time, uh, to go to Mega to get a copy of, of this document with Mega being the code name. And at this time, it raised a lot of concern and actually spawned an FBI and NSA investigation um, into what Mega was because people at the time thought it may have been, uh, you know, a mall or a spy, not unlike Jonathan Pollard, um, an individual or something like that. But actually, even though the Mega Group was founded in 1991, it wasn't until almost a year to the date after that Mega spy scandal broke that the first uh, media report ever on the mega group came out in, in the Wall Street Journal um, that talked about the history of this group and its influence and its ties and its um, alleged interest in philanthropy. But it, it's quite interesting that a lot of people in the mega group had ties to people like Mark Rich, Mossad operatives, things like that, and were actually very influential in, in lobbying Bill Clinton for the pardon. And that during this period of time, from Netanyahu's first term as prime minister, Netanyahu very aggressively spied on the Clinton White House and, and, and targeted them. And, and that we know that, um, for example, part of that pressure that was placed by Israel on um, Bill Clinton was often followed or complemented by pressure from people from the mega group on the Clinton White House. So, um, it's quite interesting to look at this um, spy scandal in, in retrospect and what we know about the ties of the mega group to politicians in, in both countries and the, people like Leslie Wexner being involved with intelligence and in blackmail and things like that and looking at what went on um, with the Israeli government targeting Clinton more broadly in the in the late 90s and to look at this mega spy scandal in retrospect and ask ourselves, well, maybe this wasn't an individual, maybe this was a group that they were seeking uh, to use to obtain this, this sensitive document. So there's a lot more that could be said about the mega group, but um, I guess I'll, I'll leave it there for now. I'm speaking with investigative journalist Whitney Webb. Today's show, How the Alliance of Intelligence and Organized Crime Gave Rise to Jeffrey Epstein. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, now, Whitney, uh, you just mentioned Netanyahu spying on Clinton, Clinton's White House. Now, this spy scandal, broadly speaking, this has to do with the high-tech industry, Israeli high-tech, uh, some of their companies, Amdocs, uh, etc. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about what you have found out in your investigation about Israeli technology and tech companies being used in the United States or based in the United States, and also a very, very, very important aspect of this is the Promise software. Right, absolutely. Could you talk about that? So um, when talking about Israeli espionage in the United States, you know, it's been going on um, for really a long time. It was going on in the 60s, especially in relationship to... um, Israel's uh, secretive nuclear program. But in terms of my investigation, I focused mostly on something that happened in the 1980s, um, beginning with the theft of the Promise software, um, where basically um, in collusion with with top officials in the Reagan administration, not only was um, the Promise software stolen from its original owners and leasers um, in Slot Inc., but it was um, 
essentially given to Rafi Eitan, who then was in charge of the Israeli military intelligence agency, LAKIM, which no longer exists. But that's also the, um, the agency that was responsible for Jonathan Pollard, um, among other things. And uh, what happened then is that basically um, Rafi Eitan entered um, the United States under an alias and obtained a copy of the Promise software claiming to be an Israeli prosecutor. Um, but actually, the Department of Justice knew at the time that the real person with that alias name, Dr. Ben Orr, uh, was not present in the United States. So they, it, it, by all indications, they let this happen. And actually, Rafi Eitan um, had developed a close association with uh, Earl Bryan, um, who was intimately involved in the theft of the Promise software from Inslaw. And they basically, according to Rafi Atan, who told all of this to um, British investigative journalist Gordon Thomas, um, he had planned uh, with Earl Bryan basically to put a back door um, into this promise software, which was very in demand, uh, not just uh, among, you know, legal offices or Department of Justice or prosecutors or attorneys offices, um, but also intelligence agencies. And so basically, Lakim um, had a back door installed in this and... Um, it was used in collusion with some Reagan officials, uh, not just as a backdoor into intelligence agencies all over the world. I believe as many as 80 intelligence agencies ended up installing this, um, but also used for financial espionage um, on, on the international banking system. Because Earl Bryan uh, was irritated by the Department of Justice use of the non-bugged Promise software uh, because it, it allowed them to successfully um, go after people that were uh, money laundering. And um, he had ties to Bill Casey and people like that. Um, and of course, during that time, you know, <laughs> during the Reagan administration intelligence, and obviously before then as well, but especially in Iran-Contra, we know that money laundering, um, BCCI and things like that, that there was a lot of money laundering and shady financial activity going on. So anyway, this um, this bug software gets sold to all these agencies. It's uh, it's sold not just by Earl Bryan's company that he starts up for the specific purpose called Hadron, um, but it's also it's also sold by Robert Maxwell, um, the father of Ghislaine Maxwell, um, well known Mossad operative and also uh, British uh, media mogul. Well, he's not British born, but naturalized British uh, media mogul. And so it, it gets sold um, all over the world, and basically uh, Israeli intelligence through that has a, uh, a backdoor um, into um, sensitive databases all over the world, um, greatly enhancing their, their intelligence gathering capabilities. So eventually um, this gets exposed uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. And um, a lot of um, these intelligence agencies, knowing that there's a backdoor there, um, uninstall the software and basically cutting off what had been you know, a, in a dragnet for Israeli intelligence, basically ending, ending the gravy train, as it were. So basically what happens um, is that, you know, obviously Israeli intelligence wanted to uh, acquire that, that edge um, again. So what, what appears to have been done was the decision to create um, private Israeli tech companies and use that sort of as a front for Israeli intelligence gathering. And that's where companies like Amdocs and Converse InfoSense, but, uh, which later became Variant Inc., um, come in. So um, these companies became the subject of, of reports in the uh, early 2000s that were talking about Amdocs and, and Converse InfoSense, their activities in the um, late 90s, talking about Netanyahu's espionage on the Clinton administration, it actually came out that through Amdocs, um, the White House phone lines, at least four White House phone lines, had been tapped. And um, this was apparently done in collusion between Amdocs and the Israeli government, that um, Amdocs had basically installed um, a way for 
phone calls uh, on the the infrastructure that they had um, installed and updated, um, not just at the White House, but several other government facilities. They had basically uh, created a way to record and then send that recording directly um, to Israel and that this was going on in the late 90s and became the subject of, of um, you know, reports in mainstream media um, in Insight Magazine, uh, the Washington Times, and later um, was the subject of a um, now very difficult to find, but you can still find it, um, report by uh, Fox News's Carl Cameron um, in the early 2000s talking about um, really the extent of this, of this espionage and there were um, efforts uh, of young Israelis that appeared to be working for the Mossad trying to find out the private homes of certain uh, government officials, specifically people working for the DEA. And then Amdocs would come in and redo the, um, the telephone lines uh, for like that area of the neighborhood and things like that. So a lot of um, odd things were going on there. And there were several DEA memos, for example, that, that were leaked during this time that suggested that, that Amdocs um, was, um, was sharing metadata from phone calls with um, Israeli intelligence and, you know, people from the DEA, uh, which was by all appearances, the most targeted government agency that, that they were concerned about this, this espionage threat. And we know that this has continued um, since then, because there was a leaked um, NSA memo, I believe in 2013, where the NSA said that the most aggressive espionage threat that the U S faced, it was Russia and China. And the number three was Israel even though Israel is an ally. And it basically said that even though they're ally, they aggressively spy um, on the U.S. government. And um, I think this, this becomes interesting when you look at current events that are going on that have to do with um, these so-called, well, they're often called Israeli startups. Well, that's like the first evolution is, is, is promise, and the second one is Amdocs, and then we get into these tech startups, which is like the version 3.0 of the same deal. Okay, so um, in, in the past few years, um, there, there's been this effort, actually it's a, a direct policy acknowledged by Netanyahu, he claims that it's been done as a way to prevent BDS from successfully boycotting Israel by making Israeli uh, tech um, and, and tech startups so in demand uh, that it's impossible to, to be able to boycott Israeli companies without putting yourself at a technological disadvantage. And this really started, um, actually, I would say around um, 2012, um, sort of these efforts to have a lot of these um, Israeli tech startup companies integrated directly into uh, major U.S. tech companies, including Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, um, pretty much every big tech company you can you can think of has absorbed or acquired uh, an Israeli startup. But but these Israeli startups that I'm talking about in particular, um, a lot of them have deep ties to uh, Unit 8200, which is the Signal Intelligence Unit of of Israeli intelligence. It's often likened to the NSA. Um, and a lot of these these people, after they leave, they they receive all this funding. Um, from the Israeli government to create tech startups. And there's actually been media reports where, where it's basically been admitted by, by Israeli officials that these tech startups um, basically serve a dual purpose, um, making money, you know, at like any business, but also um, maintain their connections to Israeli intelligence, even when they enter the private sector. Which, which obviously um, is, is quite concerning when you consider that some of these tech startups, a lot of the U.S. tech companies I mentioned that have, have absorbed some of these, do a lot of government contracting work for the U.S., um, for example, um, cloud computing, things like that. So recently we saw, for example, with the Department of Defense, um, 
there was competition between Amazon and Microsoft to offer the cloud computing service for the entire uh, Pentagon. And uh, this is troubling, and the, and, the, and the strangely didn't come up at all when that contract was being negotiated because Microsoft, um, their entire cloud computing uh, unit is actually not based in the United States. It's based in Israel, and uh, it is run by a former uh, officer in Unit 8200. So um, what does Epstein have to do with all of this, right? Um so one of these startups was chaired um, by Ehud Barak, former Israeli prime minister. Um, on its board of advisors, we have a former commander of Unit 8200, and it, it was uh, co-founded by several uh, former members of Unit 8200, one of whom recently left the company to go work for the founder of what was formerly known as Blackwater, um, Eric Prince, and Barak actually... Um, when he was looking for people to fund this startup, uh, he tapped uh, not only Peter Thiel of Palantir, but he also tapped uh, Jeffrey Epstein. And so these are the three main funders, along with, uh, I believe, two Russian billionaires who are funding um, this company that was first called Reporty and is now known as Carbine. And what Carbine does is that it is promoted as a service to emergency service providers. So basically it gets installed on the infrastructure of uh, local 911 call centers, um, assumably fire departments uh, and, and police departments, things like that. Um, and you also have to install it on your phone um, and it has access to uh, your camera and location. Um, and the idea is that when you have this app on your phone and you call 911, it gives 911 your location immediately, speeding up the time it takes them to get to you and gives them a camera feed of where you are. And they are also marketing it specifically as a solution to mass shootings in the United States. But because of what we know about you know, the history of, of Israeli uh, military espionage in the United States, um, it's quite... Um, troubling that people like Jeff Epstein are involved in, in funding this. And we also know that there's other people on the board of advisors, for example, that include a uh, former uh, head of Department of Homeland Security, uh, Michael Chertoff, and you also have people that were in the Trump administration's transition team um, also present on this company. So um, to me, given uh, what we know about that, and Epstein in particular, his ties to intelligence, Ehud Barak also um, has longstanding ties to the Israeli intelligence community, including Rafi Eitan, who was the guy behind the Promise software backdoor, should be cause for concern. Uh, but something else I'd like to point out, going back to the larger trend of this, um, you know, Carbine is just one company. There are um, many of these startups, as I mentioned, and uh, one particularly alarming example I, I failed to mention earlier is that um, several of these startup companies become successful because they're uh, connected with investors through companies that, that call themselves incubators or like tech startup incubators. And one of these is called Team 8 that's also run by a former commander of Unit 8200 and was actually funded by a former CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt. But actually, one of Team 8's most recent hires was the former NSA director, Mike Rogers. And they hired him as a senior advisor. And when they hired him, a lot of people at the NSA actually spoke up openly and said the reason they hired him isn't because they, they think he's going... Well, the official reasons was that he was so uh, knowledgeable and smart and such a great guy, right? But these NSA officials said the reason Rogers had been hired was because he knew where the U.S. US technology, both in the private and public sector, is most vulnerable uh, to espionage, which is quite um, concerning because um, quite telling that corporate media hasn't complained about this at all because, I mean, just imagine if the former NSA director had been hired, uh, for example, by a 
a tech company incubator run by a former commander of Russian military intelligence. I think that would probably be all over, um, <laughs> you know, the corporate media, the New York Times, and and really every major other outlet would be talking about it ad nauseum. But, you know, this happened last year and has been uh, widely undercovered as has, you know, Epstein's own ties to companies like this. And given uh, what we know about the aggressive uh, Israeli military uh, intelligence espionage um, against the United States and, and particularly the government, um, I would really argue that these new uh, Unit 8200 connected startups really seem to be the, the new phase of what began originally as um, this backdoor in the Promise software and later uh, was Amdocs and Converse Infosys. Today, I think we're just seeing a lot of these smaller startups you know, sort of being gobbled up by by tech giants, and they're they're beginning to uh, play an outsized role in a lot of these companies' affairs, um, including research and development and cloud computing, um, even you know security um, for a lot of these tech companies. It's um you know quite concerning when you consider the the deep involvement of foreign military intelligence being so involved in uh, the tech sector. Which then again, these companies remember many of them are major uh, U.S. government contractors with access to uh, um, the government's most sensitive data, um, and is now being more tied in than ever to um, a foreign military intelligence agency. Whitney Webb, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. I've been speaking with Whitney Webb. Today's show has been How the Alliance of Intelligence and Organized Crime Gave Rise to Jeffrey Epstein. Whitney Webb is a Mint Press news journalist based in Chile. She has contributed to several independent media outlets, including Global Research, EcoWatch, the Ron Paul Institute, and the 21st Century Wire, among others. She has made several radio and television appearances and is the 2019 winner of the Serena Shim Award for Uncompromised Integrity in Journalism. Visit mintpressnews.com to access her four-part exclusive investigative series, Inside the Jeffrey Epstein Scandal, Too Big to Fail. The current story is at the top of the website, and the banner link to the entire series is right below. That's mintpressnews.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yara Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio.
for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me?